This is the Sideline Dissonant Podcast, coming to you from iTunes and YouTube. Follow me on Twitter, at the Brad Whitaker. I am, of course, the Brad Whitaker. Got a good one for you today. Lots to talk about, as always. Be previewing the AFC Championship game between the Steelers and the Patriots. Big Ben and Tom Brady. It should be a good one. They'll also be talking about the Baseball Hall of Fame vote and this PED problem that we're still having that we still can't overcome. We got to admit, people, the golden age of baseball was when everyone was taking steroids. I'm not saying they should, but okay, I'll get to that a little bit later in the podcast. Uh, But first, do we have a new MVP candidate? Boston Celtics point guard Isaiah Thomas is having a breakthrough season, and we all, we all knew he was a superstar. Last season, we found out, hey, this guy is good enough to carry an NBA franchise. Is he good enough to carry him to the finals? Probably not, because we know in today's NBA, it takes multiple stars to get to the finals, because that's the way players have been setting it up, at least of late. Uh, now, as I've said time and time again, If we were going by who actually deserves the Most Valuable Player Award, by the definition, Most Valuable Player, LeBron James would have won the award his second season in the NBA and won it every season since. I've said that pretty much every single podcast I've talked about the NBA, and even in reference to the NFL at times because I've talked about the MVP there. Uh, But judging by today's standards, it's the players that have the most highlights that can fit into a seven-second vine, that grab the most headlines on HoopsHype.com. It's those players that win the MVP award. And we know who the two favorites are, and I'm not saying they shouldn't be the two favorites, although I think LeBron James should be the favorite because of what LeBron does he's irreplaceable you take him off a team they're not the same Uh, but judging by today's standards we know who the two favorites are because they've been the ones grabbing the most headlines they've been the players that have been in the most highlight reels those two players are Russell Westbrook and James Harden Uh, Westbrook is still currently averaging a triple double and James Harden uh, he's pretty close He's pretty close. And these are two players I've been very critical in the past on the podcast. Although I am coming around on James Harden a little bit. We know he is a terrible defender. We've known that for a long time. Uh, But he's become a significantly better passer this season. Uh, That being said, I'm critical of both the Thunder and the Rockets because every play is an ISO play to Harden or Westbrook. They're a very one-dimensional offense. I just think Houston is better three-point shooters, better pieces, and it seems to work. Because Harden isn't just a drive-and-dish assister, unlike Russell Westbrook. Uh, Harden's actually learned how to become a very efficient point guard in the last couple off-seasons, particularly this off-season. Uh, but we got to watch out for a player that hasn't grabbed many headlines on a team that, since Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett were there, also hasn't grabbed many headlines, that has quietly be- become better and better in the East, and they grab perhaps the second-best free agent this offseason in Al Horford, uh, the Boston Celtics, and probably the most underrated coach in the NBA, although I think Brad Stevens does get a lot of attention because he's so young and what he did at Butler. I would say maybe Budenholzer from Atlanta. He might be the most underrated coach, uh, but 
Brad Stevens is so young, his coaching skills get better and better, and as a result, we've seen that team get better and better, and they have a lot of different pieces, but we know Isaiah Thomas is the superstar on that team, and he's actually fourth in the league right now in terms of points per game, which is only .1 behind Anthony Davis. So uh, before last night, and the Celtics did lose to the Knicks last night, uh, that's worth mentioning, but... uh, only point one behind Anthony Davis. So going into the night, he was actually tied with Davis at third. And we all know who the uh, t- uh, the players ahead of them are, which is Westbrook, uh, who leads the league in points, and then Harden. But uh, just let me talk about Isaiah Thomas a little bit. I'm not saying if the season ended right now, he deserves to be the league MVP. But I do believe he should be part of the conversation right now, and I think by the end of the season, it's possible, as long as we stop fanboying about Russell Westbrook, it's possible that Isaiah Thomas could be the frontrunner for the Most Valuable Player Award. And here's why. Okay, Isaiah Thomas missed four games in December with a groin injury. Celtics, they lost three of those games. Now, since Thomas has returned from those four from those four games that he was out with a groin injury, the Celtics are thirteen and four. And in the last ten games, Isaiah's point totals are as follows: thirty-nine, thirty-nine points, thirty-five, twenty-eight, thirty-eight, twenty-seven, thirty-eight, twenty-four, twenty-nine, fifty-two, and thirty-one. Now, you look at his game log early in the season, his point totals were not that high. And unlike Oklahoma City and Houston, the Boston Celtics are a team that spreads the ball around. Now, I know what you're thinking. Brad, Isaiah does not have the assist numbers for to be considered for the MVP award. His assist total is very low for a starting point guard. I don't have it, I don't have it right now. I think it's just above six assists per, per game. The assist statistic is overrated. Now, I'm not saying assists are overrated. I'm saying the statistic is overrated. Because the way Russell Westbrook gets assists is completely different from the way Isaiah Thomas gets assists. Russell Westbrook dribbles the ball at the top of the key. They run an isolation play. He dribbles off 15 seconds of the shot clock and either drives to the hoop and tries to score or he drives, lets the defense collapse, and then kicks it out. That's how he gets the majority of his assists. You can say the same about James Harden, although to a lesser extent. He's able, he has a significantly better court vision than Russell Westbrook does. and That's why his assist total is higher. But in a lot of cases, it's drive and dish for James Harden as well. For Isaiah Thomas, it's different. You ever watch the Celtics offense? Not many people have. Not many NBA Pete writers have paid much attention to the Celtics this season. They pass the ball at least five or six times before they score. It's like the Golden State Warriors, except they obviously don't have the same shooting the Warriors have, although I think the Celtics are a more physical and certainly a better rebounding and shot-blocking team than the Warriors are. But they, they nobody can shoot threes like the Warriors. That's why they are as historically good as they are. <clears throat> but again, Oklahoma City and Houston run a very one-dimensional offense. Almost always an isolation play to their two-star point guards, Russell Westbrook and James Harden. The Celtics is far more complex than that offensively. 
because they have a lot of depth. They have a lot of smart players. They're young. Uh, Brad Stevens likes to draft uh, some of the more academic players out of college, and uh, we see it. They run a far more complicated offense. It's far more complex than anything Oklahoma City and Houston runs, and yet Isaiah Thomas's point total is fourth in the league, and he gets legitimate assists, unlike the triple-double stat stuffer that is Russell Westbrook. Again, I wouldn't give the MVP award to Isaiah Thomas right now, but he's getting better, and it's a long NBA season. Right now is actually, for most teams, the halfway point in the NBA season. We, there's still so much to go. Uh, we forget it's an 82-game season. I don't get the idea Oklahoma City uh, and Houston have the kind of offense uh, that allows for longevity. I don't expect... I, I wouldn't be surprised if James Harden, and especially Russell Westbrook, who's averaging a triple-double, I wouldn't be surprised if their numbers decline because their offenses are so dependent on those two players and and because those offenses are, are mainly uh, isolation plays at the top of the key. Uh, and I would expect Isaiah Thomas, at least the way he's playing right now, barring any significant injury, I think his numbers will get better. So I wouldn't be surprised if in a month and a half to two months from now, we're sitting there talking about Isaiah Thomas for the NBA MVP. Call me crazy right now, but ask me in a few weeks. A chance yesterday. I uh, I did my preview for um, the uh, Packers Falcons NFC Championship game. Uh, you can either listen to yesterday's podcast or find uh, that preview specifically on on YouTube. Uh, but today I'll be uh, previewing the AFC Championship game: Pittsburgh Steelers versus New England Patriots. Should be a good one. This is Brady's second AFC Championship against Pittsburgh. Uh, Brady and Big Ben, believe it or not, have only met once in the postseason. Uh, They met back in uh, the mid-2000s in the AFC Championship game. Uh, Brady, again, hits his his second AFC Championship against Pittsburgh. Uh, Both times were on the road. He won both games, but the first one was all the way back in 2002 uh, when nobody knew who this Tom Brady fellow was, and he carried the team to a Super Bowl. A lot has happened since then, obviously. Um, Now, these two teams did meet earlier in the season. New England won a blowout in Pittsburgh, uh, but you got to kind of throw that game out uh, because Landry Jones was the quarterback for the Steelers that day, and uh, Pittsburgh's been a lot better since. Their second half, they're winners of nine straight currently. Their defense has come a long way, and Le'Veon Bell... He's playing the best football of his career. Now, the strengths for the Patriots, uh, like, I, I'm not, I'm good. I, I have to admit, I'm probably a bit biased. I'm a Patriots fan. But their strengths is just about everything on offense, even without Rob Gronkowski out there. 
They have a great receiving core. They add in um, Michael Floyd to that receiving core in the past few weeks. Uh, he didn't do much last week, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he has a few big plays on Sunday. Uh, and their offensive line is far improved from last season. And we all know Tom Brady's their quarterback. Also, New England's running game uh, is strong. They get a great power back in LeGarrette Blunt. Deion Lewis can do a lot of different things. And James White is basically another receiver for the Patriots at the running back position. Uh, they have a middle-of-the-pack middle, middle of the pack defense in terms of yardage, but the Patriots' defense is very efficient in the red zone. They don't give up a lot of points. Uh, now, as for Pittsburgh, their strengths, obviously their biggest strength is running the football with Le'Veon Bell. they got a strong offensive line. Uh, not exactly the best pass protection, although they do a decent job, uh, but mainly their offensive line is great at opening gaps for Bell, and we know how patient he is at finding those gaps. Really, there hasn't ever been a running back like him, although I think Ezekiel Elliott is starting to steal some ideas from uh, Bell's playbook. And uh, also, uh, recently, Pittsburgh's defensive front has gotten a lot better. Now, uh, that being said, if you were talking about the Steelers' biggest weakness, it is their defense. Nothing to brag about, but it shouldn't be overlooked by the Patriots. Uh, New England had a tough game last week against the Houston Texans defense, particularly in the first half. And Houston's defense is built a lot like Denver. Uh, a team, the Broncos, they've consistently uh, given Brady a lot of trouble over the last few seasons because of the way they've built their defense. Houston's done, did a lot of the same, especially in the first half last week. The only difference is the reason the Patriots won by so much is because the Texans had Brock Osweiler on the other end running a not-so-complicated offense. Uh, and as we saw with Houston's defense last week, they... Their defensive front showed multiple looks, multiple pass rush concepts. Uh, Jadavian Clowney became, is, has become this season the player we all thought he'd become when he was drafted first overall back in 2014. And uh, the Texans were really the first team this season to generate that kind of pressure on New England's offensive line, which I would argue is a, a top five O-line in the NFL. Uh and because of it, because Clowney was so effective in that defensive line for Houston last week, they didn't have to rush many players. And they helped Houston in coverage. And the Patriots should have been down in the first half at halftime last week. The, the only reason they weren't is Brady made a couple of throws downfield that could have gone either way. Uh, and they just happened to fall into Julian Edelman's hands. Uh I'm a Patriots fan, but I'll admit, a lot of those throws are very lucky. They could have been intercepted. Brady made those throws because if you're going to take a chance, you make it downfield. And Houston's man-to-man -man was tremendous. And I wouldn't be surprised if Pittsburgh tries to do a lot of the same things Houston's defense, at least their defensive front, did last week. Now, I don't think Pittsburgh has the defensive backs that uh, Houston has, but their defensive front has gotten a lot better this season, and they've expanded their looks in the second half. That's a big reason why they've won nine straight and frustrated Kansas City's offense last week. Now, look, I, I understand the hatred for Alex Smith, but he's still a reasonably efficient quarterback, and Houston has a ton of offensive pieces, and they couldn't do anything against Pittsburgh's defense last week. Again, Pittsburgh's defense, they've expanded their looks, and 
it's going to be difficult uh, for New England. I I don't get the idea that they're as efficient at attacking the quarterback as Houston. I don't think anybody has been this season, so I think that might actually be the best defensive front Brady has gone against all season, other than maybe Denver, and he didn't have a great game against them earlier this season also. But Pittsburgh's defensive front has gotten a lot better, and you have to remember that. Now, I would expect New England to combat this with a lot of no huddle. They're going to make a lot of quick passes, those three-step drops that Brady's so good at with those screen passes, especially these... Uh, dip and dunk to the running back plays the Patriots like to run often. And they're, they're going to try to not give Pittsburgh's defense a lot of time to adjust at the line or to get to the quarterback. They're going to try to keep them tired. Um, now, uh, on the other end, Pittsburgh's offense against New England's defense. The Patriots, as we've known forever, they're very efficient because they like to take your biggest strength and just completely remove it from the game. Obviously, Pittsburgh's biggest strength is their running game with Le'Veon Bell and his patient attack on the ground. Of course, stopping Le'Veon Bell is easier said than done. Nobody has been able to stop him since Baltimore and Dallas did, and that was back in weeks 9 and 10. And, and, and in those games, in weeks 9 and 10 to Baltimore and Dallas, the whole reason Le'Veon Bell didn't rack up a shit ton of rushing yards like he has in the last nine games is because Pittsburgh was playing from behind most of the game and had to throw the ball a lot. So you could argue that Bell would have had even more 90-plus yard games. Now, here's here's an interesting fact that nobody knows. And, and this is something I've been saying all season, and I'm wrong, clearly. I've been wrong about this. I've said New England doesn't have a great rush defense. But believe it or not, the Patriots haven't allowed a rush rusher over 90 yards in 24 games. Not a single running back has racked up 90 yards or more on the New England Patriots in their last 24 games. Now just to give you an idea, Pittsburgh Steelers are on a 9-game winning streak. Le'Veon Bell has rushed for 90 yards or more in every single one of those games. So that's a key statistic there. Patriots can keep him under 90 yards. They're likely going to win that game. Uh, so I would expect New England to overload uh, in stopping the run defensively. That's what they're going to try to do. And like Ben Roethlisberger, he's one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. But he hasn't been very consistent this season. So I wouldn't be surprised the Patriots force Ben Roethlisberger to throw the football a lot, meaning if they're overloading on stopping the run, that means Malcolm Butler will have to guard Antonio Brown. What the Patriots like to do oftentimes is you always expect uh, a team's best corner to go against the opposing team's best receiver. What the Patriots often like to do is put Logan Ryan, who's uh, their second best cornerback, uh, on the team's top wide receiver, and then they double-team him all game, and then put Malcolm Butler, their best cornerback, on the second-best wide receiver, who's Coates for Pittsburgh. Uh, they can't do that, because they're going to be focusing on stopping Le'Veon Bell, which means the defensive backs are going to have a lot to take care of. So, if Antonio Brown has a big good game, I wouldn't be very surprised. But, that also means Le'Veon Bell might not... It's going to be very difficult for both Bell and Brown to have a good game against the Patriots. New England's going to try to stop one of them, and the way New, uh, Le'Veon Bell's been playing of late, the way Pittsburgh has been rushing the ball, that's what they're going to be focusing on. Patriots are going to try to take the running game out, but it's difficult. Again, 
Nobody has been able to stop Le'Veon Bell since Baltimore and Dallas in weeks 9 and 10. Two games where Pittsburgh had to throw the ball and was playing from behind the whole time. So who knows, Bell could have still had a great game. Uh, and I have an interesting t- statistic here, if I can just find it real quick. Uh, Le'Veon Bell, in the last five games, he has 74 first down runs. And on those runs, he's averaged 6.3 yards uh, per carry, which has taken a lot of pressure off Big Ben, who, again, not having the most consistent season of his career. So, Patriots are going to want Big Ben to throw on first down. So they're going to be preparing for the run on first down, I would expect. And if you take that element out of the game, Pittsburgh isn't great on third down. Give them a couple more downs to try to get that first down. You stop them on first down. That's how the Patriots win this game. Although, Pittsburgh certainly has uh, a smaller margin of error than the New England Patriots do. Here's the way Pittsburgh wins the game. And there's two ways to beat the Patriots historically in the last decade. And I say, I've say i said this on past podcasts. Uh, you need to win the special teams battle. That's important for beating the Patriots, and you need to make Brady hear footsteps, you need to get to the quarterback. Even if you're not sacking him a lot, you need to have a lot of big hits on Tom Brady. Uh, Again, you don't need high sack totals to beat the Patriots. You just need to have Brady hearing footsteps all game, and you need to win the special teams battle. So Pittsburgh needs to do both those things, and they need to stay consistent on offense. Le'Veon Bell needs to rush for over 90, 100 yards like he's been doing. And Ben Roethlisberger, has, he can't have a bad game, obviously. So uh, New England, to win the game, all they need to do is slow down Le'Veon Bell. I mean, they, they need to keep him under 100 yards. They keep him under 90 yards, they've, they'll be doing something teams haven't been able to do in 10 weeks. So, again... Much wider margin of error for the Patriots. We know they're the favorite going in. I believe they're a touchdown favorite. Uh, I My prediction, this is going to be a shocker here, not. I'm picking the Patriots to win the game 30-20. to 20. It's rare that New England has two weeks back-to-back with bad games. Uh, they can do more offensively. They're going against a weaker defense, although, you, like I've been saying, you don't want to overlook Pittsburgh's pass rush because they've gotten a lot better and that's a big reason Kansas City wasn't able to do much last week. That being said, Pittsburgh's beaten a lot of bad teams on this winning streak. Go look at their schedule. Not a ton of great teams, but again, going into Arrowhead Stadium, winning at night in those kind of temperatures against that defense, that's tough to do. So you don't want to overlook the Steelers, uh, but they also can't rely on their kicker Boswell to win the game for them. Pittsburgh didn't get in the end zone once last week. Boswell, I think, had six field goals. Uh, That's not going to beat the Patriots, obviously. Um, And I think that's a testament to Kansas City's defense. They were bend but not break. And that's what happened. Steelers weren't able to get into the red zone, but their defense made up for it. And because of that, Brady is really going to have to focus on that difficult Pittsburgh pass rush, which has gotten significantly better this season. Uh, And, of course... This might be the last time we ever see Tom Brady and Ben Roethlisberger face each other in the postseason. This is only the second time it's happened, so get the popcorn ready. It should be a good one.
Now, I'm gonna have just a brief segment on this. Uh, the we know who the class of 2017 is for the Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, three players were were just voted in. Uh, those players are Jeff Bagwell, Yvonne Rodriguez, and Tim Raines. All great players. But let's list who didn't get in. Okay, let's let's do that, shall we? The players that missed the Hall of Fame vote. Again, Jeff Bagwell, Yvonne Rodriguez, and Tim Raines got in. The, the first player that just missed it was Trevor Hoffman. You need 75% of the vote. He had 74%, although that total went up 6.7% this season. Uh, Vladimir Guerrero just missed it. He had 71.7% of the vote. This was his first year on the ballot. Uh... So chances are he will get in if on his first ballot he's plus 70 already. Uh, then it drops the, off a table a little bit. Edgar Martinez is next, 58.6%. He's up 15% since last season. And then we get into the PED players, or alleged PED players. Roger Clemens, 54.1%. That's up 8.9% from last season. Barry Bonds, 53.8%. We're all unsure if he's going to get in. It's actually look, looking okay for Bonds because he's up 9.5% since last season. Then we have Mike Messina, 51.8%. That's up 8.8% since last season. But here's where it gets kind of weird. Okay, Again, you need 75% of the vote. These are the players that missed it. Bagwell, Pudge Rodriguez, and Reigns all got in this year. Here's where it gets weird. Kurt Schilling, 45%. That's down 7.3% from last season. Okay, then you have Manny Ramirez. This is his first year on the ballot. 23.8%. And then, what's most absurd, Sammy Sosa, 8.6%, which is actually up 1.6% from last season. So, again, Bagwell's in, Pudge Rodriguez is in, Tim Raines is in. Trevor Hoffman and Vladimir Guerrero just miss it. Edgar Martinez, Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, Mike Messina, Kurt Schilling, Manny Ramirez, Sammy Sosa, not in. We need to stop this. Alright? I became a baseball fan because of the steroid era. I'm not saying it's because of steroids. That just happened to be when I grew up. But... Baseball was a hell of a lot more exciting between the years 1997 and 2005. The golden age of steroid, PED, masking agent, baseball. Alright, we can't ignore this era anymore. The reason why baseball is in, in the decline is because we have the younger millennial generation coming in. And, you know, they like faster paced games. Uh, that's why the NBA is getting more and more popular every year. That's why the NFL is more popular than it's ever been. I think it probably peaked this year, to be honest. Uh, and baseball, since since the Red Sox won the World Series, for the most part, has done this. All right, And that's not because the Red Sox won the World Series. The Cubs won it this year. That was good for the sport. But it's still going to keep doing this. All right, We can't ignore amazing players that played in this era, okay? The the drug policies are in place. They're heavily enforced now. 
We know we're not going to have an era like that ever again. But, if everyone was taking steroids, or at least the best players were taking steroids, doesn't that sort of level the playing field a little bit? And, look, Roger Clemens, we know he probably took it. We know a lot of these guys probably took it. Bagwell, Yvonne Rodriguez, Pudge Rodriguez was listed, I think, what was it, was it the Mitchell Report? It was either the, no, I think it was Jose Canseco's book. They said he was taking steroids. So, players that there's no proof they took PEDs aren't getting in. At this point, the baseball writers are just picking and choosing. You know, and I was listening to The Herd earlier, and Colin Coward was talking about how most of the players listening in the Mitchell Report were in the Northeast because the players that uh, listed, or because of the, the trainers that listed players that were put in the Mitchell report for potentially taking PEDs were mostly from teams that played in the Northeast, Boston, New York, those teams. So had it been trainers from the West Coast, we'd see a lot more players there listed in the Mitchell report. Everyone was taking steroids. We know that now. You read it in the books. Jose Canseco isn't lying about this stuff. We saw their heads get bigger. All right? At some point, we're going to have to start letting these guys in because it was it was the one time in the last three decades that baseball was the number one sport to watch on television. And that was toward the end of the Michael Jordan era. What That home run race between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa in the late 90s might have been the most exciting thing to ever happen to baseball. All right? Now, we all kind of put an asterisk on Barry Bonds because it was clear he was taking steroids uh, long before he broke the all-time record. But we need to judge this off of productivity. Now, here's another point uh, that I think I should make. I just mentioned this. Kurt Schilling only got 45% of the vote, and that's actually down 7% from last season. Now... Schilling, this is what happens in baseball. Usually, uh, the writers will leave off a player in his in his first year. They think it's gonna, t- you know, there's first ballot Hall of Famers. Pedro Martinez last year was a first ballot Hall of Famer. It's, it's pretty obvious. But so they'll leave they'll leave great players off, and then as the years progress, like Tim Raines, they'll eventually get in. Kurt Schilling went down seven percent. Now, nothing happened in his baseball career in the last year for that total to go down 7%. But what did happen? He made a lot of unpopular political points on social media. He posted a lot of memes, a lot of silly stuff, not stuff that I necessarily agree with. But if his total is going down 7% after he's already been on the ballot, or he's barely been on the ballot. What does that tell you about the baseball writers? They're not making these votes on productivity, which is what you should be doing. So I I think this is something you have to do in the future. You have to tell the baseball writers, when you cast your vote, you have to ignore PEDs. You just have to at this point. Jeff Bagwell, Pudge Rodriguez, and Tim Raines are all great. 
They're not better than Clemens. They're not better than Bonds. They're not better than Maguire or Sosa. Manny Ramirez is one of the smartest hitters in the history of baseball. He got 23% of the vote. And Kurt Schilling, who doesn't have the greatest regular season numbers in the world, he is one of the greatest postseason pitchers, pitchers of all time. What do you go? 12 and 2, 14 and 2 in the postseason? He turned around the Arizona Diamondbacks, a team nobody even knew was in the league, and they won the World Series. Three years later, he went to Boston. Losing culture. Turn it around, they won the World Series. Game six, bloody sock, one of the greatest moments in baseball history. His vote went down 7%. What does that tell you? Baseball writers, they they like to make these decisions. They're making political decisions. They're making them based on PEDs. They're not actually looking at the statistics. They're not looking at the highlights. They're not looking into postseason baseball. They're just doing this stuff at the top of their head. And at some point, we need to let some of these players in because baseball is getting less popular and it's going to continue on that trend if we don't do something about it. And I'm sorry, Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, Kurt Schilling, Manny Ramirez, and Sammy Sosa shouldn't be on the bottom of the list. They just shouldn't. And I like Vladimir Guerrero, but he's not a first ballot Hall of Famer. He should have maybe got 50%. 71% of the vote. Round up, rounds up to 72. Would that be the case if the baseball writers weren't factoring PEDs? Of course it wouldn't. So this whole system is screwed up. We need to do something about it. Uh, I'm going to start a grassroots movement. Alright, so that's it for today's podcast. Uh, that's, I'll be, that's it for the week. Uh, next week I'll be reviewing the or recapping the AFC and NFC championship games and be talking a lot more NBA and uh, what else? What else is going on next week? Oh, at the end of next week, I, I should have a Super Bowl preview out for you. So you can have that to look forward to. Until then, I bid you adieu.